0: Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. Welcome back to Word on the Street, the first of the year. Hopefully, you all had an enjoyable festive season. I'm Miles Sherry, one of the wealth managers here at Barclays. And today, I'm back speaking with Will Hobbs, our head of UK multi-asset wealth, about the year ahead and some of the burning questions on the minds of both our clients and colleagues. They range from US elections, the escalating conflict in the Middle East, the evolving potential for the next global recession, Bitcoin, the top seven names that have been dominating the US. The list goes on. But we'll do our best to arm you with what promises to be a fascinating year ahead. So Will, welcome back. Here we go again after a few weeks off you're back in the chair. Why don't we start off with the most difficult subject and one that comes up a lot in the questions that we've received. Broadly speaking, if you badge it into one, we're talking about geopolitics. Now, quite an interesting question to start with. One client has actually suggested that World War Three has already begun and the rest of us just haven't caught on yet. That's a nice, easy one for you to begin with.
1: God. yes yeah, sorry miles uh yes and 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 happy year to you and, and and all the listeners um yes i mean a couple of points i think miles and as usual these answers come from the sort of cold-hearted perspective of investment returns and this sort of you know the constant search for them. Uh, And this often takes no heed of the suffering civilian populations. You know, many people listening will have family members, friends, loved ones directly affected. Uh, And I guess I'm asking for your forbearance for this piece. You know, we in no way want to underestimate the pain and suffering going on right now. However, our job here is to guide investors. Anyway, I think the point I'd make is that the moment we're in is certainly precarious. There are multiple, seemingly intractable conflicts around the world. Many of these have the potential to escalate into something much wider, with the Middle Eastern Ukraine, you know, the easiest to imagine currently. I think the key here for investors is not the ability to sort of get ahead of prices and duck in and out of investment areas ahead of predicted conflict escalations. Uh, As an old boss used to warn, when the main protagonists themselves don't know what comes next, uh, beware the multitude of armchair generals in the pubs, cafes and chat rooms that would authoritatively second-guess them.
0: Yeah, I remember him well. He was a particularly wise chap, wasn't
1: he? Yeah, yeah, a very wise tutor. And the accompanying point, I think, is that for investors, it's more about establishing whether there is a trend in violence conflict or, you know, other that, that requires asset prices to change the compensation on offer, to provide more or less compensation, depending on that perceived uh, trend, you know, to get people to lend to governments or to buy stocks. So if we were living in a durably more violent, more uncertain times, investors lend to certain governments for example should ask for more yield would-be owners of stocks the same you know
0: and, and are we do you think we are
1: uh it's very difficult to tell isn't it i mean i know that's a, i'll try to be less on the fence, than usual yeah. yeah no i'll try not to but i mean what we can say is that we're not helped in this quest by media with an ever more pronounced negativity bias uh you know some of the studies on this negativity bias in media have actually been Recently updated and show that the trend uh, is even more pronounced now. Uh, the competition between mainstream established media uh, and social equivalents has actually spurred this on. You know, outrage, disgust, horror are the emotions seen as most likely uh, to get us clicking through. So that is what profit incentivized business, that's what they're going to try and provide no matter the state of the world.
0: But there are more encouraging longer term reflections and data sets coming from the likes of Max Rose's our world in data, Stephen Pinker and other rational optimists, right? It's not all doom and gloom.
1: Yes. I mean, I think, yes, correct. That's correct. And Marcy, you know, if you adjust for the fact that about 7% of the people who have ever lived are alive on the planet today, and I know we put that stat out a few times, but I I think the trends are more encouraging in that context. However, that statistic also suggests that there will always be enough horror um, to amply fill our 24-hour news feeds i think that's an important point
0: yeah got it so in short a number of geopolitical risk measures out there supposedly measuring the temperature of the world now some seem to be going into the stratosphere at the moment around this is that actually really useful to pay attention to for long-term investors I'm, i'm guessing not
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, actually, one of our, you're right. (laughs) You can save, you could save us all a lot of time and just answer your questions, (laughs) ask your questions better, better than I could. But yes, I mean, actually, one of the, one of our research providers, one of those, um, you know, other firms we look to, to sort of increase our, intellectual and investing powers uh, around the world. Uh, And they did a great study on this, partly this anyway. It it was part of a bottom-up evaluation of all available indicators from the ISM manufacturing survey to retail sales data to some of these indices that you talk about, you know, the geopolitical risk indices. And the question asked was, if I could jump forward in time and know what these indices would do, retail sales, ISM, geopolitical risk, would do in the six months, year ahead, would it actually help? you know help me make better investment decisions which is a fair enough question you know it shows what we should be paying attention to or not to a degree and interestingly enough the geopolitical risk indices came right at the bottom ie they were of no use whatsoever uh, beyond the whole you know 5 minutes to midnight doomsday clock vibe which seems to
0: Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Good. Very helpful. We could talk about that um, for for this whole podcast. But it does in many ways move us on quite nicely to the next sort of batch of questions, which surround Mm -hmm. the outlook for the US and global economy. And there's still, let's be frank, pretty weird gap between the real-time coincident data, which speaks of, well, the US economy in particular still coming along quite nicely, really, and the lead Mm -hmm. indicators such as the ISM and some other surveys that let's be frank, suggest potentially gloomier times ahead. So how do you square all of that off?
1: With great difficulty, Miles, I have to say. Um, And yes, you know, this week we've had US retail sales and it's really clear that the US economy is not just not lying down, you know, buckling under the pressure of interest rates. Far from it. uh, As you say, it's humming. And the new normal would appear, you know, judging by incoming sort of coincident data, would appear to be at around... 6% 6% nominal GDP growth, which is a very healthy clip indeed, really. The all-important U.S. consumer is enjoying real wage growth. And most who are looking for a job have a job. Um, and the confidence to splash these wages around still seems to be there. Meanwhile, factory construction is surging. You know, Investment in intellectual property and research and development also seem to be on a sustained uptrend and the reality is that it's a lot easier i mean even it's quite difficult to tell what's happening now it's a lot easier to tell what's happening now in the economy than what is going to happen no surprises obviously. There. And, yeah yeah it's an obvious point isn't it but it sometimes gets lost you know because sometimes when we talk about the metrics like the ism or the shape of the yield curve with a bit of predictive power the predictive power is still incredibly weak of course it is the future hasn't happened yet and the further out you go the less comfortable should be. So it's a familiar warning to sort of de-emphasize the lead indicators, because although they can be of some use, it's not a surefire soothsayer.
0: And and it it all makes sense. But I suppose you could worry that interest rates staying up at current levels, even if they didn't cause that expected potential blow up last year, they must be putting you know a huge amount of pressure really on certain borrowers out there, particularly uh, if I thought of one area, maybe parts of US commercial real estate so what's your kind of thoughts around that?
1: Yeah I mean correct I think that is you know a a lot of the time you find that higher interest rates expose poor borrowing lending spending uh, and you get a kind of chain reaction which if it's big enough can take down you know an economic cycle and and like you say office in the US uh, you know a part of commercial property in the US is in obvious difficulty uh, in part because of changes in working patterns so we're just working from home the U.S. workforce has changed its working patterns, uh, the location of its working patterns anyway, and it's sort of sustained, settled at a higher uh, trend in working from home than previously. And that's combined with the fact that these commercial property developers are highly leveraged and need to roll over lots of debt this year. The bill comes due, as they say, and, and this could really hurt the regional banks where many of these loans originated. And that's certainly one vector which could plausibly blow things up. However, Uh, One of the measures that the Federal Reserve looks at as a lead indicator of sorts is the share of risky debt as a proportion of total debt in the economy. And as with other similar metrics, that's not really flashing sort of warning signs. So the growth of this last economic cycle was not financed particularly alarmingly by debt, even if I'm sure that those low interest rates financed some projects that didn't merit it. So, yeah,
0: Interesting. So my takeaway there would be, I mean, let's be frank, there are some risks in the year ahead. Of, of course there are. But in reality, it's not necessarily that much more than normal. Recency bias can play a big part here, can't it?
1: Yeah, I think that's right, Mars. I mean, I think that's just... Uh... Keep an open mind here, but remember, and get back to that point, you know, we were harping on about this a lot, that remember that growth is the norm, not the exception. The economy's natural state seems to be to add jobs and, uh, and grow, and every now and again, blow-ups come unpredictably. And that point is important because avoiding recessions as an investor is simply impossible. In spite of what the know-it-alls and snake oilers will tell us, it's just part of the price of the ticket to access all of that future innovation we're already ta- always talking about there are some indicators suggesting a slowdown ahead like you said and th- and some of those have got a decent track record in the past but far from infallible uh, they are of a lot less worth than advertised so don't spend too long thinking about where everything's going to blow up remember proportionally you've got to think about reasons why it wouldn't grow as such so your starting point should be innocent so until proven guilty, guilty. yeah yeah. Sorry,
0: yeah. I've
1: no, I mean, too many times. It's,
0: it's very true. Let's <laughs> let's move on to elections next, and this is one that's going to no doubt dominate the headlines over the course of this year. Some are calling it the year of the election. So you've got the US, we've got the UK, we've got North Korea, Taiwan, Russia, South Africa, the European Parliament. I think I heard you say the other day, actually, that some 40 percent of the world's population are actually eligible to vote this year. So a huge number. I, can't,
1: I still haven't verified that fact. So I, I did. <laughs> yes. I did
0: hear it and I did check it and it it sounded about right. So, OK,
1: not, OK, so it's not. Let's loosely okay, good, go good. with
0: it. It sounds about right. Yes,
1: that's fine. And, and so we've already had Taiwan elections, obviously. That was last weekend and it sort of passed without too much incident and sort of you know managed to. Tread the tightrope uh, of not offending uh, their neighbors yeah. too much, and also sort of showing that the sort of t- the democratic experiment is alive and well uh, in uh, in Taiwan. And I can't imagine that elections in Russia or North Korea will be nail biters, to be honest. But yes, like you say, there is a lot of voting scheduled for this year across a range of systems with a lot of potential implications for markets and investment opportunities. I think the main point I would say here. You know, first and foremost, is that similar to the points made on geopolitics, which is really that uh, investment returns are primarily driven by the growth of the global economy, most importantly, the US economy. And in spite of much commentary to the contrary, that growth is often very resilient, almost sometimes insensitive to the setting of policy. That's monetary and fiscal, actually. Uh, and meanwhile, it's incredibly difficult and dangerous to translate, you know, stump box rhetoric shouting, uh, particularly in something like the US primaries, where you have candidates speaking to their people uh, rather than the broader uh, populace.
0: Commentary to the contrary. That was a good old tongue twister. But, but yeah, <laughs> look, on the subject of US elections, that that's going to be the main factor most would suggest this year. You've always said the US economy, at least for now, remains the drumbeat for the global economy. So what w- what do you see playing out there?
1: yeah i mean it's a pretty interesting setup isn't it i mean they these would be even population life expectancy adjusted the oldest candidates to ever um have battled it out for the chair but i think by some distance and that assumes that um we are looking at former President Trump versus President Biden as a rematch. Um, because of that age factor, there are many actually that are assuming that one or both of them may not actually be the ones that ultimately battle it out. These are grueling campaigns, remember, and the you know health can intervene. Um, anyway, I mean, to a certain extent, whatever, we don't want to get into guessing who wins or who ultimately competes too much because there's much that we don't know here. The point here is that the U.S. Constitution was designed back in the second half of the 18th century, and the forefathers were very, very worried about despots and autocrats. Um that fear was constitutionally formative, you might say. And it's a very difficult constitution to change as it goes, which suggests that even if we get another round of uh, President Trump, he will definitely be gone within four years. That's, you know, there will still be much that he could achieve, good and bad, within four years and certainly. But in a sense, the message from the first term was that the economy was quite resilient uh, and uh, insensitive to many of the policy measures, both good and bad, to be honest. Um, and yes, so it's focus on the economy and don't get too focused on your Twitter feed, your X feed sorry, I should say.
0: Yeah. So remember, economic growth is often more separated from the uh, political debate, shall we say.
1: Perfect summary.
0: Excellent. Right. One area that has really been prominent, at least in the developed world political debate in recent years, I suppose, is actually influential in economic growth. And that relates to trends in immigration. So what should investors be thinking about in that sense? Another topical one as well.
1: Yeah, yeah, it is very topical and it's very difficult. Um, and there's lots of kind of reductive shouting going on. Immigration, as we know, affects different communities very differently over time. Different time periods. Um, it's very complicated to analyse the positives and negatives. It can be very difficult to absorb and incorporate new communities. Particularly, if public services like schools and hospitals struggle to keep up, as they often do across you know multiple countries, experiencing you know looking at past history studies. Um, There is a strong positive case to make from an economic standpoint over the long term. And this is important. There are multiple studies showing immigrants in the UK, for example, as net positive contributors uh, to the sort of financial balance. One, I think, really interesting point here, And it's a little bit abstract, but I think it surrounds the the, the nature of uh, immigration itself. You know, the huge risk taken by a family deciding to uproot themselves and move to another country. There's interesting overlap. It sort of corresponds to the same kind of sort of necessary risk-taking aptitude seen in the most successful entrepreneurs. That may help explain the preponderance of immigrants amongst the most successful entrepreneurs in the U.S. and elsewhere. But this is another fiendishly complex, you know, uh, emotive subject, sadly kind of obscured by shouty public debate. Uh, there are real considerations on both sides of the argument that get lost in this, I think. Uh, so just, you know, one to sort of try and keep balanced opinion closed, but it's a, it's a very... It's a very complicated subject. Yeah,
0: no, absolutely. Um, Right. In terms of my next sort of batch, you can kind of sense I'm trying to go through the questions in some sort of semblance of order. And thinking about those elections we've just discussed, another factor that could influence them, perhaps significantly, is inflation. Now, in the US and the UK, there are perceived to be a fair amount of backwards. Looking actors, we should say we're not using that as an offensive term. It's more of a statement, right, of how people derive their feelings about the economy. In the US, Biden's ratings on the economy, I'm going to be frank here, they still look pretty terrible in spite of the fact that the US economy seems to be booming. Now, one explanation for this doom surrounds lingering effects of inflation, even as it moves into the rearview mirror, or let's be frank, as, as most people are hoping, But fresh off the press, does this week's data suggest that maybe, you know, we've still got a bit of a wake up call to adhere to in that respect?
1: Yes. um, Interesting. I mean, like you say, inflation prints have bumped up a little in the last last month. Uh, This week in the UK, there was a little bit of a surprise. I mean, be wary of the decimal place here. Remember how inaccurate inflation data are uh, and therefore the decimal place is irrelevant. I mean, really, really and disingenuous as well. It can all
0: get dramatised a bit, can't it?
1: Yes, and I think, you know... But it has got, you're right, yes, I mean, there is part of that sort of daily psychodrama in markets and, you know, you need data and therefore whatever data comes in gets commented on and inflation is front and centre and we want to be able to say what's happening, but we just can't. But it has got investors wondering whether we'll actually see the interest rate cuts this year from various central banks or at least will we get as many as only recently expected and when could they start?
0: And the situation in the Red Sea that we're seeing on the news every day, that that surely can't help because we've got thousands of container ships Diverted around the Horn of Africa, and let's be frank, it's a lot of extra miles, and that means a lot of extra cost.
1: Yes, yeah, all true. And one of the lessons of the past few years is that, among the many things that we don't predict uh, very well, uh, and I'm talking as a species rather than as (laughs) bank—that's important—is inflation. So, I mean, look, I I personally think this is quite a lot of wasted breath. I have to admit, there is this kind of weird hall of mirrors always in play uh, between central bankers and bond investors. Uh, one always trying to second-guess the other. It fills the airwaves, just as you said, and throws off an awful lot of headlines, but I'm not sure it leaves us much richer for paying attention. Um, yes, we have a tactical team of tactical investors who have to pay attention. Uh, they're paid to pay attention uh, and actually use this game to make money for clients here and there, among other areas. They did so successfully last year, the year before, and the year before that, happily. Um, however, for most listeners, I would just say, trust us if you can. We are paying close attention so that you don't have to. Um, and my hunch for whatever it's worth is that the economy should slow a bit this year, but a recession can be avoided. That is my base case. I think that inflationary pressure will continue to unevenly sort of drop back. and Unevenly is the key word here. Yeah which should provide a bit of scope for interest rate cuts in the second half in the US. They could conceivably come a bit sooner in Europe. Um, and actually, even that inflation print in the UK, even though it was a bit of a positive surprise, the inflation story is still way ahead, as in better uh, than the Bank of England forecasts from back in November. So there's still some updating to do. And I think the other point here is that there are members of that tactical investment team who are very understandably sit on either side of that, you know, that benign view from me, more negative and more positive. Uh, And I think that's what makes a good investment debate and a more robust portfolio. I'd be more worried if everyone agreed with me.
0: (laughs) And, And sticking to that point, what does it all mean for stocks? Because looking again at some of the questions we've had submitted, a lot are asking, not surprisingly, as to whether the Magnificent Seven, so those top names driving the U.S. market, can their incredible run continue or even what are the conditions for their potential fall? On the flip side, you could reverse that and say, what might it take for the other, let's say, 490 odd stocks in the S&P 500 index to catch up?
1: Yes. And I think God, there's, a, there's, a, there's a lot to say here, but I'm going to keep it short because I think we've already sort of, you know, tried the listeners ears enough But I think first and foremost, these are incredible companies and part of the point of the capitalist kind of market based system is that supreme operators, skilled operators need the incentive of what are called monopoly profits uh, to get them to strive for productivity, efficiency and the rest. There's a carrot at the end of all of that effort and it's more profits. The age old question is how much of these monopoly profits is enough? How do you make sure that these monopoly incentives don't become barriers to the rest of the corporate sector's excellence? With too big and too powerful comes political lobbying clout so that you can fix the rules of the game in your favor. Uh, And it can even act as a disincentive to research and development and the stuff we really need. And it's a moving feast as well, like the technological context kind of can make competition easier, less easy, you know, it can confer power on the already powerful, all these kind of things. And I think in this context, there are a couple of things to think, you know, for the Magnificent Seven, there are, a well, not the Magnificent Seven, but for a couple of the Magnificent Seven, there are antitrust cases in motion at the moment uh, with the U.S. Uh, Department of Justice up against a few of these titans. Keep an eye on these uh, because that could change the playing field uh, a bit. I also think the new incoming technology is interesting. I mean, it looks like these guys have kind of grabbed the market already. That is the way it appears. I'm not sure that's the case. And that's not what history would teach us with regards to kind of technological breakthroughs in general. And I think specifically this type of technological breakthrough. The points as usual, I think, are that the ingredients into these companies' incredible success... Uh, from technological to regulatory to macroeconomic, they can move on unpredictably and reward different sectors, styles, and so on. And that's why we spend a lot of our time thinking about diversification beyond the recent batch of winners, uh, whether corporate, country, or wider. So, by all means, still focus on some of these businesses, but I think the, the, the advice really is to, you know, make sure you're also you've got some skin in yeah, some of the yeah, less yeah. fashionable areas. Yeah. You know, diversify beyond.
0: And sort of connected to that, but maybe not really. I think I know what your views are going to be on this. Which, you, <laughs> <laughs> When you're talking about diversifying, would you consider Bitcoin at all? That's a question that's come in from the clients as well.
1: Yes, I mean we are getting questions again, um, which is interesting in its certain. Uh, it seems to come in wave, doesn't it, on Bitcoin? Yes, but, but sometimes I mean sometimes these things can follow price moves as well. Yeah. So that you know, and that 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 that's that's totally understandable in a way. Um, you know, if you see other people starting to reevaluate something, you wonder whether it's worth having a look at it yourself again. Um, and there may be also people who've still got it, you know, stashed away as an outside bet uh, from the last kind of big. Surges. Um there's no change in our view. Um I think this is still a great way to lose all your money. There is still no real use case beyond speculative asset. And and remember, the needs of a speculative asset, i.e., you know, come with quite a bit of excitement. They contradict the requirements of a currency, which you know, primarily predictable. Uh, I don't want to go down to the shops hoping to buy a you know, a pint of milk with my Bitcoin and find that I can only buy a penny chew by the time (laughs) I've walked there. My children will be disappointed. Yeah, so it's the volatility alone that sets it off. And I'm still not sure of the use case. And I, I don't think, you know, still the Bitcoin standard makes no sense. Um, you know, we we tried this before, the gold standard, um, it was a constraint on the global economy. You know, you can read this in any number of, you know, decent history books about um the periods of uh the gold standard, if you tether your economy to a fixed supply of anything that is inherently deflationary, um, that's the way it works. So I I don't I don't personally see a case for it. But that's not to say, and I think you know, if you look at the history of technological developments, I think there's a really interesting angle, which is that you get these breakthroughs that don't appear like they're breakthroughs at the time. They can look like time wasters and there's a sort of speculative bust as such, but when something else comes along. Suddenly, some of the underlying technology, say blockchain, can become really interesting in that context. And there's, I've seen really interesting kind of ideas behind where blockchain could go and could facilitate to do with corporate size as well. You know, if you think about just, and I'll finish off here, but one of the arguments behind mega corporations and themselves was this idea of trust across different boundaries. And so the idea being that if I wanted as a business in Asia to do business in US, It was easier to trust in that transaction if that business was inside my own corporate structure that that would facilitate. And therefore, I wouldn't have to worry about all of the different kind of legislative zones and those kind of things. But if you could kind of institutionalize trust via a technology, would you still need to have that giant corporate structure? So that's one of the ways why or how you can find technology sort of evolving to change all sorts of things about investing unpredictably.
0: Very interesting, and as always, right? Only time will tell what the future holds. So we yes, will just exactly, have to wait and see. Exactly, exactly.
1: But keep, keep a glass half full if you can. I know it's a difficult period for humanity, and it does appear. Yes, I mean you know the news feeds are, are, are pretty pretty doomy at the moment, and for good reason. There's lots going on that is that is very difficult to swallow. Um, but remember that investing in global economic growth is about something different quite a lot of the time. Yeah,
0: yeah, good. Fantastic. Well, look, it's great to be back, Will. We'll be back, won't we, now to our usual weekly schedule. So hopefully that was a good, useful starting point. And we will speak again next week. All investments can fall as well as rise in value and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.